Hi, everybody. Happy Sunday. Good to see you all. How you doing? Good. How you doing, David? I'm good. Thanks for asking. It's good to see y'all. So, um, we are in the midst of our series called Loose Ends. Uh, my name's David. Uh, I hang around here, been around here for about a decade. Every once in a while, I get to preach, which is so fun. So, um, this Loose Ends series that we're in is this, this series that I, I feel like it just solidifies all the beliefs I have of how bizarre of a church we are. Um, that we're just taking the summer to, you know, take it light and study all the passages everybody else skips. So we just thought, yeah, why not? We'll take a break and do the hard stuff. And uh, so it's really fun. But when I think of this series, it makes me think of my childhood. So when I was growing up in church, the church I grew up in, we would do these things called sword drills. Anybody do any sword drills growing up? Now, now here's the deal with the sword drill. If you got tabs in your Bible, you're cheating. You can't have it. There are official rules for sword drills. Because here's the deal, you would, everybody would take their Bible, they would hold it up in the air, and then somebody at the front, uh, they, they would yell out a Bible verse. So they would yell out like, Philippians 4.13, and then everybody could pull their Bible down, the first person to find it raises their hand, and then they get a point. And the, what I discovered about sword drills is this was every youth pastor's go-to thing if they didn't plan anything is there were like 30 kids there and they would just say, whoever gets five wins, which would take like an hour and then they'd call it a day. Um, But what I have discovered about the sword drill is that this series called Loose Ends are all the verses that would never get asked for in a sword drill. It's all the verses that like, they're not trying to get kids to memorize the Exodus 4 verse Greg talked about a while ago, which if you weren't here, enjoy. Um... Uh, or any number of these verses because they're ones that we just kind of skim, we kind of minimize them. Sometimes we just try and, I don't know, make up excuses for them. But today, we're going to dive into a couple of them, and that's what we've been doing for this summer. And what I'm grateful for about this church is that we have a laser focus on the fact that if we want to know what God looks like, we look to the person of Jesus, And if we want to know what Jesus looks like, we look specifically to Jesus on the cross, as Paul did in 1 Corinthians 2.2. And so if we're running into loose ends, we know that the filter through which we filter all those is Jesus, which is really good news as we deal with loose ends. But the problem for today is what do you do when Jesus is the loose end? How do I filter Jesus' loose end through Jesus when Jesus is the one who says it? Because if I'm honest, and I think if all of us are honest, there are parts of the Gospels where Jesus says something that we maybe cringe at a little, or we maybe kind of skim over it, or, or, or maybe we minimize it, or we dismiss it, or, or we say, well, it, it's not really that bad, or Jesus said it, so it must be fine, even though it just sounds really insensitive. Um, so what we're going to do today is dive into a couple of those loose ends from the mouth of Jesus. But before we do that, I want to talk a little bit about this book, because what I have discovered about this book through studying it is that it's possible, especially in the Gospels, like in the Gospels, there's like the red words, which are the words that Jesus said. It's possible to take this as like a flat text on a page, and so we end up dissecting words 
rather than getting to know the person who said them. Because it's possible to to think that this is all just flat text without all the nuance uh, of what it looks like to communicate in real life. Like we don't catch the body language, we don't catch the emphasis, we don't catch the figures of speech, and yet Jesus was, was fully immersed in a Middle Eastern context, speaking a different language 2,000 years ago to a people in a totally different context than we're in now. And so to the degree that we, we look at this as flat, we actually miss the person that we're supposed to be getting to know in it. And so, well, what I've discovered, and one of the things I'm, uh, I think is most fascinating is that one of Jesus' favorite ways to talk was using this figure of speech called hyperbole. Um, and for uh, those of you not English majors in the room, um, here's how uh, Seneca, who's a Roman historian, how he defined hyperbole, and it was my favorite one. He says, hyperbole asserts the incredible in order to arrive at the credible. So it asserts something bigger than life in order to try and communicate something else. So it asserts something that oftentimes it's not even possible, but it's to try and get you enticed to understand what else is going on. And Jesus uses this a lot, but it also shows up quite a bit in our own culture. And the the two places where I see it most commonly in our culture are in advertising and in pretty much every child. They are masters of hyperbole. So what we're going to do a little game together. So I'm going to name a company, and I want to uh, see if you know their slogan. So the first company is Disney World. Anybody know their slogan? Yeah, I heard it back there. Happiest place on earth. Well done. You get nothing. <laughs> Yay! Um, okay, so here's the thing. Happiest place on earth. Okay, I was at Disney World a couple years ago. Okay, so you walk into Disney World. It's the magical street leading up to Cinderella's castle. It's like this iconic experience. We're halfway up this journey up the road. I'm having all these dreams of joy and happiness because it's the happiest place on earth. And I walk by this kid, thankfully it wasn't mine, uh, who was like sprawled on the ground just crying his eyes out. And his dad, who does not get dad points, is looking over him and he goes, This was our dream! (laughs) And you're wrecking it! You're a dream wrecker! (laughs) And I thought of all my friends who are therapists, and I thought, this is why you have job security forever, is because of the happiest place on earth. Okay, so that's hyperbole, I think. Uh, How about the company Red Bull? It gives you wings! It gives you wings! Does it really? Um, Okay, so Lauren, who was up here uh, helping lead us in worship, uh, uh, she's my sister-in-law, and one of the things that Lauren did, which is really her claim to fame, is that eight years ago she worked for Red Bull. Yeah. Uh, So she drove that car that has the Red Bull on the back and just drove around handing out Red Bull. And and, uh, let let me tell you, there were some days like where she had a quota of how many Red Bulls she had to give out in a day for free. And sometimes she wasn't feeling the whole job thing. So she would just come over to our house and drop off a couple cases of Red Bull. And uh, (laughs) she has way more integrity now. Uh, But one of the things I have realized about Red Bull is that it doesn't give you wings when you binge drink it. It actually gives you um, indigestion. It's, uh, it's, it's actually quite terrible. Okay, one more company, and this one's a little harder. 
Oscar Mayer. Hot dogs. That is one of the things they produce, but it's not their slogan. <laughs> so when I think of Oscar Mayer, here's what I think of. I think of cylindrical bologna. So like, you know those bologna packages that are clear and it's just like a cylinder of bologna? Well, listen to what their slogan is. It doesn't get better than this. <laughs> oh, asserting the incredible in order to arrive at bologna. It's trying to get you to get enticed by something. Or like last week, my family and I were in the North Shore and we were hiking. And um, one of the things I've discovered with five, eight, and 11-year-olds is that if you just hike all day long and don't stop or tell them when you're going to stop, sometimes they get ornery. And so I would hear things from them like this, Dad, Dad, this hike is never going to end. Or they'd say things like, Dad, I'm so hungry, I'm literally going to die, which was a great opportunity for uh, a teaching moment because um, I could sit my 11-year-old down and say, you know, June, I hear what you're saying. Uh, that sounds like a literal statement, but just so you know, it sounds more like you're asserting the incredible in order to arrive at the credible, which is actually hyperbole. I'm teaching about that next week. So just so you know, to use the word literal when you're actually talking about a hyperbole is actually a contradiction, so you might not want to do that. And she said, oh, dear father, thank you. And she was, she was so grateful. So, so here's the thing. I think we recognize hyperbole when we see it. Like, we experience it, we notice it, like, like we, we get genre and how communication works in our current context. Like, like, if I start a story with once upon a time, you kind of know where that's going versus if I start a story by saying CNN is reporting that and we all go, oh no, um, but like we get the different genres and we know how, how their nuances work, but the problem is that with this book, it seems like we, uh, and I know I have in particular, I've been taught to deny my instincts around what I'm reading. Because th there was this assumption growing up that if I want it to be true, that means it has to be literal. That if I'm looking for something to actually be authentic, it has to be a literal reading of it. And so even if we find things that, you know, that there's traces of myth or poetry or hyperbole or exaggeration, we oftentimes dismiss it. And I think the real trouble is that in an attempt to dissect words on a page, we miss our opportunity to delight in the one who's saying them. And so I think the challenge today is how do we move beyond that? Because I think there's a lot at stake. Like, uh, it seems like in most, co like in most conservative circles of, uh, of evangelicalism or Christianity, um, like, there's this emphasis on a literal reading of Scripture. Like, the Bible said it, that settles it, I'm done. Like, it's literal. Uh, and then if you get to more, uh, maybe more liberal parts of Christianity, it tends to be more hyperbole. That it's, it, well, that, yeah, he said that, but he didn't really mean it, it was metaphor, which is interesting, but it creates real problems when we get to significant doctrines of the Christian faith. Like, like when we're talking about hell. Is hell, is it hyperbole? Is it Jesus asserting the incredible to arrive at the credible? Or is it literal? Like, is there a literal hell? Um, or, or what about, like, the sexual ethic in Scripture? 
Like, is that just hyperbole? Jesus saying, well, maybe don't do that. Um, or maybe do that. Uh, or, or is it literal? Is that what he's actually saying? Or, or what about one of the phrases of Jesus that, that is the core of an Anabaptist theology that is uh, so core for us at this church, which is love your enemies? Is that literal? Or, or, or maybe that's just hyperbole. Like, like maybe Jesus is just saying, maybe hate them a little less than other people. He's, a, he's asserting the incredible to arrive at the credible. There's a lot at stake with this, and so I think we, we need some grid to use. And so what we're going to do is kind of turn this space into a bit of a classroom. So are you guys ready to go to school? Yeah. <laughs> it's summer, kids. Why not? Um, so what we're going to do is we're going to take four different criteria that we're going to use and apply to these passages to try and help us see, okay, are these literal or are these hyperbole? And based on that, how does it help us interpret them? So, here are four criteria we're going to use. So, the first criteria is statements which Jesus says which are literally impossible. So, if Jesus says something that's literally impossible, this is a, something that's supposed to clue us in to, oh, maybe this isn't literal. Maybe he's saying something that's hyperbole. Maybe it's, it's different than just a fact. Like, like, like when Jesus says it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than a rich person to get into heaven, which is literally impossible. And so, so if we read that, maybe that's our, our key end to say, okay, what else is going on? Or the second criteria, statements which conflict with what Jesus says elsewhere or other New Testament writers say. So if Jesus says one thing in one place and seems to say the opposite in another place, then that's our key in that one of those probably is not literal if we're assuming Jesus is not just contradicting himself all over the place. So that's our second criteria we'll use. The third one is statements which conflict with the behavior and actions of Jesus elsewhere. So not just is it different than what he said, but is it different than what he does? And then the fourth criteria is statements which the audience or other gospel writers of Jesus don't interpret literally. So one of the blessings of the gospels is we have four of them. And the vast majority of what's written in the gospels shows up in other gospels. And oftentimes they'll kind of put their own interpretive spin on it to help us better understand what's going on. So sometimes we can look at what Luke said, but then say, well, maybe Matthew did it a little differently that can help us interpret this better. So... That, uh, those are the criteria we're going to use for our loose end. So now we get to have some fun. So the loose ends we're dealing with today are around the topic of family values. Because if there's anything that the Christian church, especially over the last 40 or 50 years, has honed in on to say this is core of what it means to follow Jesus is an emphasis on family values, the sanctity of marriage, the sanctity of this relationship between, between kids and their parents, this sanctity of this relationship of caring for your grandparents, of caring for the rest of your family. And, and so if, if Jesus is our spokesperson, surely he agrees with us on that one. Surely he does. So let's look at our first loose end. Luke 14, 26. Jesus says, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, and some of you added mother-in-laws, but it wasn't in there, so shame on you, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. 
He cannot be my disciple. So what is going on? Because last I checked, Focus on the Family didn't have that verse on their pamphlet. Um, Neither did Family Life Ministries, neither does Awana, neither do all these Christian ministries that are focused on the family. So is Jesus just contradicting himself? Or did we misunderstand it? Did we misread what Jesus' focus is? So let's use our criteria. So let's pull it back up, our four criteria. So what we're going to do this together. So when you look at these criteria in light of that verse that we just read, are there any of those criteria that maybe hint at us or to us that Jesus isn't speaking literally? And if there are, just yell out the number. Two. Okay, I heard two. And three? Do I hear another? Four. Okay. Uh, so let's start with two. Statements which conflict with what Jesus says elsewhere or other New Testament writers. So one verse which is uh, rather well known that Jesus says in Matthew 22, he says, love your neighbors. He also says, love your enemies. So if we are supposed to love our neighbors and we're supposed to love our enemies, my hunch is family fits in there somewhere, right? (laughs) Either close neighbor or either closer to the enemy, but either way, we're supposed to love them. Which then begs the question, well, well, maybe what Jesus said in that verse, it, maybe it's just a bad translation. So, so like in that verse, the word hate is the Greek word missio, um, which when I looked it up in about six different Greek uh, dictionaries and lexicons, the, the consistent thing throughout all of those is that the actual word missio means, get this, to hate. Isn't that helpful? So, so, the, so Jesus actually said that, but it doesn't seem consistent with what else he says. Okay, so somebody else mentioned three statements which conflict with the behavior and actions of Jesus elsewhere. Now, when I think of that one, my mind immediately goes to Jesus on the cross. And one of the last things he does is he's on the cross dying, and he looks down and he sees his mom. And then he sees John his disciple, and he looks at John and says, John, this is your mom now. And then he says, Mom, this is your new son now. That, that with Jesus' last dying breath, one of the things that he does is to care for his mom and make sure she's not going to be left out in the cold, which certainly looks very different than hating your mom. And I, I heard somebody else mention four, which is statements which the audience or other gospel writers of Jesus don't interpret literally. Which, I know you're a smart church because that, that must mean you guys have the parallel passage in Matthew memorized. So, one, two, three, go. Let's put it up and then we can read it. So, here's the parallel passage in Matthew for this. Anyone who loves his father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. Anyone who loves his son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And anyone who does not take up his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. So do you notice what Matthew does? That most people believe that, that, that the 
actual words that Jesus said was most likely that whoever doesn't hate their brother, sister, mother, father, because within the Middle Eastern context, to use that type of kind of bigger-than-life hyperbole was, I mean, that's just how you spoke, but, but Matthew's assuming people aren't going to necessarily get that, so he helps us out by changing the word hate to the word more than. So anyone who doesn't love me more than their wife, more than their kids, more than their brothers or sisters. And so there's something going on here, I think, other than Jesus assaulting family values. Because I think what's happening here is that he's not, he's not denying the importance of family, but I think in denying that or seemingly denying that, he's emphasizing to a greater degree the call of discipleship. That, that he's saying that this discipleship, this following of me is going to take everything and, and you can't let anything get in your way and if there were one thing that would normally get in your way, it'd be your family. And, and he's wanting to say, no, this call is so important. It, it's like when I've officiated weddings, one, one of the things we do is like we'll talk about how the wedding is this time to leave your parents, leave your family and cling to your spouse. And while the parents who maybe are paying for the wedding wouldn't appreciate it, you could almost say it's time for you to hate your family and cling to your spouse. Not because you're supposed to, but because there's this passion in you that knows that this is the best possible thing you could do to love your family. That in order for this relationship to work, it needs all of your attention and all of your focus and all of your love and all of your devotion. And to the degree that I don't do that, it actually disempowers me from being able to love my family. That if I'm always showing up on empty and I don't have the love of God filling me, then my attempts to love my family are just going to fall apart. So I think what Jesus is getting at here is he's saying, yes, family is important, but you got to know that you need to see that family as if you hated them as it compares with your devotion to me because out of that devotion to me, you will then be able to overflow in a love you could never give your family. And, And so I think Jesus is confronting that peace in us, uh, of, that, uh, of that tendency to have divided loyalties, to want to try and live in both worlds. And he's saying, no, follow me with everything you've got, and I'm going to empower you to do all the other things. Which, unfortunately, is not our only loose end around family values that Jesus provides for us. So, let's look at the next one. This is from Luke 9. Jesus says to another man, follow me. But the man replied, Lord, first let me go and bury my father. Seems like a valid excuse. But Jesus said to him, let the dead bury their own dead. You go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Yeesh. (laughs) Just turn the page. Um, I mean, let's be honest. Like, how insensitive is that? I mean, that seems utterly ridiculous. It seems like, okay, yes, following you, important, dead father, can I just go bury him? I I mean, realistically, is Jesus saying, yeah, wherever your dad is, just let him kind of decompose where he happens to be lying and follow me? Because if that is what Jesus is saying, it's probably the most scandalous thing he says in any of the Gospels. Because this is hitting right at the heart of the Jewish faith, of the Jewish expectation around caring for your relatives. 
So let's bring up our criteria to deal with this one. So do any of these criteria help us maybe give a clue that something else is going on here? One? Two? Okay, one and two I heard. So the first one, statements which are literally impossible. Okay, is it literally possible for a dead person to bury other dead people? Not without some serious smelling salts or unless it's a zombie movie or something. Like, that doesn't, it's not possible. Okay, so, so something else must be going on that like, why would he say that if you can't literally do it? Which seems to point to hyperbole. And then I heard somebody say two, statements which conflict with what Jesus says elsewhere or other New Testament writers. Take a look at this verse from uh, 1 Timothy. Whoever does not provide for relatives and especially for family members has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. So is Paul saying that Jesus has denied the faith in himself? I mean, it, there's all sorts of things that come together that, that just make this confusing. So, so I think with the, this looks like hyperbole, it seems inconsistent with who Jesus is, which begs the question, like, what do we do with this? What do you do with a verse like this? What was Jesus actually trying to get at? Which, I think we've got three main options of what, where he was trying to go with this. The, the, the first one is the most literal option, is that he was literally saying, I know your dad is dead, but you're going to need to just follow me and not worry about it, which, like I said, it, it literally is the most scandalous thing he could have possibly said if he actually meant it that way. Because within the context of Judaism, caring for a dead relative takes precedence over everything. The, the, there's a book called the Mishnah, which is the Jewish oral law, and look at what they said about caring for a dead relative. It says, he who is confronted by a dead relative is free from reciting the Shema, this Deuteronomy 6 passage, from the 18 benedictions, oh, and just in case you weren't clear, and from all other commandments stated in the Torah. That if you have a dead relative, everything else needs to get left aside. All the 613 commandments in the Torah. You don't have to worry about any of them if you have a dead relative. So, there's something else going on because if that's actually what Jesus is saying, I would expect they would kill him immediately. I mean, because he is confronting something that is core to the belief structure of Judaism. But it makes me, it, it just makes me kind of wonder, like, I feel like this guy's story doesn't check out so well. Like the guy who comes to Jesus and Jesus says, follow me. And he says, yeah, I'm going to follow you, but first let me go and bury my father. Which within the context of Judaism, like, uh, and during the time when Jesus was around, it's not like there was embalming fluid. Like when somebody dies, you bury them. Like you do it right away. And yet this guy's father is dead, but he's over hanging out with Jesus. Why is he there? Why isn't he at home taking care of what he's supposed to be doing if it is so core to the Jewish faith? Um, which makes me wonder, like, something else must be going on underneath the surface to, to help us gather some more information because it seems like this might just be an excuse this guy's using. 
So, so there's two other kind of pieces of background that I think help to maybe unpack what this hyperbole that Jesus uses is all about. And the first one relates to, to Jewish burial practices, which I'm going to tell you even though I know you're already familiar with it. Um, so the, the Jewish burial practices had two stages to them. The first stage was you would wrap somebody up kind of mummy style and then you would put them into a tomb or a casket. But what would happen is that then you would wait a year and on the anniversary of their death, you would go back to that tomb or that casket once everything had kind of decomposed and you would take the bones out. And you would put the bones in a bone box, which is called an ossuary. And we've got a picture of one here. So this bone box is where the bones would go of both you and your family after your body had decomposed, which is super fun to think about. Um, so... This bone box actually belonged to Caiaphas, who was the high priest during the time of Jesus that archaeologists found. So the, what many scholars think is going on is that Jesus is not, he, he's not being insensitive. He's recognizing the fact that, that this guy has come and says, yeah, I got to go bury my father, to, to which mo a lot of scholars think he's referencing this like in-between time. Of like, yeah, my dad died eight months ago, but in four months, I'm going to have to do the bone box thing. So I can't follow you right now. So uh, what could be going on is Jesus saying, you don't have a year to wait. Like, this work of following me needs to happen right now. Like, it is critical. It is of the utmost importance, and I can't wait around for another year because you need to follow me. So I think that's one option. The other option is that what's going on here is, is that Jesus is being confronted with a traditional Jewish idiom. Um, and the phrase in the passage in Luke 9 that, that they're talking about is this phrase, to bury one's father. He says, I need to go home and bury my father, which still today in the Middle East is a phrase that gets used by children to say, I can't leave home until my father dies, which could mean at this moment, this guy's dad is 50 years old out running a marathon, for all we know. But, but the idiom to bury one's father just indicates that it could be 10 years, 20 years, 30 years, but I can't leave home until my dad is dead, that that is my responsibility. So, so either way, whether it's this two-stage burial process or confronting this, this Jewish idiom, I think what we have underlying it all is that Jesus is confronting our divided loyalties. That Jesus is confronting us with the fact that if we are going to love Christ, love for Christ automatically classifies every other love as a lesser love. That, that I can't claim Jesus as Lord and then put limits on what that lordship actually means. It's like, it's like Jesus says, I'm going to give you this most magnificent gift that you could possibly ever want. And then we respond to him by saying, well, is it coming a different color? Like, is there a different version of it? Do you have the updated model that you could provide for me? It's, it's what Dietrich Bonhoeffer referred to as cheap grace. It's grace on my own terms. It's grace the way I want it. And yet, if there's anything clear about this passage, I think it's that Jesus takes the best possible excuse to avoid following him, and he eliminates it. He says, yeah, I know that within your community, the most important thing you need to do is care for your family and, and bury your father. And yet I'm telling you that this takes priority over that. 
And it's not out of like a selfish way. It's that God is jealous for your attention. He wants your focus because he knows that when he has your focus, then he will actually be able to empower you with the life that he wants to give you. Jesus wants your focus. And it makes me wonder, like, where do we dodge that? In what ways do we find excuses to give God all of it? I know I do it in a lot of ways. I think for some of us, it's just busyness. It's just, well, I'm going, going, going. I, I just can't slow things down. I think for some of us, it's maybe we, we kind of use the excuse of, well, God, if you told me what you wanted me to do, I'd do it. Just tell me, why don't you? Um, to which he says, well, I kind of did. Um, I think I told you. I know for me what it looks like is I just want control. I want control over my things. I want control over my time. I want control over my money. I just want control. And Jesus says that you are not the best one to take care of your control. <laughs> that when you hand over control to me, I actually reframe everything that you think is important. And I actually reframe it. Because I think that Jesus speaks to us using hyperbole because he knows how inundated we are with all the things that are antithetical to the way of God. That it's almost like he needs to jolt us up, to wake us up and say, pay attention, pay attention. This way that you're trying to do this and the priorities you're trying to live on are actually going to distort your ability to hear me clearly. And he asks for all of our focus and all of our heart. He asks for it all. Thirteen years ago, my wife and I uh, went to Israel. And we were there for three weeks. It was this amazing trip. And uh, if, I, I know it's pos not possible to think I'm any cooler than I currently am, but check out this picture of me 13 years ago with my wife. Oh, man. You're welcome. Uh, so here's the deal. For, on this trip, the way it worked is we would get in a bus and we would get driven to we didn't know where. And the only thing we knew was that when we got there, we would be told this is either a one-water-bottle hike or this is a two-water-bottle hike. And if it was a two-water-bottle hike, it meant we were climbing mountains that day, which we, nobody liked. Um, but so we, probably on this three weeks, we climbed, I don't know, nine or ten different mountains, which it was this strenuous task. And this next picture is a picture of us on top of one of these mountains. This is a Mount Arbel right off, the, right off the Sea of Galilee. And I remember this mountain in particular because I think it was the hardest one we climbed. And I was sweating more then than I am right now. But one of the things we realized is that it wasn't just enough to finish the climb. Because when we finished the climb, our guide taught us that what we needed to do is we need to come back to the edge of the mountain and look down at those who were still struggling their way up and we would yell a word to them. And we would yell this word that comes from Deuteronomy 31 that says this, be strong, which is this Hebrew word, chazak. Be strong and courageous. Do not be afraid or tremble at them. For the Lord your God is the one who goes with you. He will not fail you. He will not forsake you ever. 
And so as we would be up on top of this mountain, we would look down and we'd see our friends that are maybe struggling or they've stopped or they're having a sip of water and we would yell down and we'd go, Hazak, you can do it. You're going to make it. You're going to be okay. The mountain doesn't go on forever, praise God. It's actually going to finish. And so it became this picture of like the next person would come up and then the chorus would be louder because then we'd be yelling to the next person and the next person and we would just keep encouraging those who are coming to say, Hazak, you can do it. Hazak, you can do it. Because what I have recognized and I've realized more and more, Woodland Hills, is that the call of Jesus is enormous. The call of Jesus is not a small thing, and the call of Jesus is worth everything to give up for, but it takes hazak. It takes a massive amount of hazak. Because I think what's going on in this passage is that Jesus is not like, he's not hating on families, but he's letting you know the task is too big for you to be focused on anything else right now. That the task is too big and you need to give me all your heart. Because this community, what I know about this church is that we have come so far and that God has incredible things in store for this church, but it is going to require some hazak. Because one of the things I know is that there are high schoolers in this church that are dealing with types of temptation and types of bullying and with social media and all the different facets that have never existed before for high schoolers and it is hard. And what we need to declare to our high schoolers in this church is to say, Hazak, you can do it. You're gonna be okay. But it doesn't mean we do it alone. It means that this community needs to come around our high schoolers and say huzzah and show up at Echo and to be a community that says you're going to be okay. You can make it. You can hold strong. There are parents in this room, and I know you all, that are literally drowning in infants. Like it's a real problem. And what, what I know and what I think God wants to tell you and what we need to tell you as a community is hazak. You can do it. They get older. I wouldn't have thought it. But they get older. But what that means is that for those of us who don't, are not drowning in infants, maybe it means going back to Hero's Gate and taking care of some of those kids. And when they drop off their kids, say to those parents, hazak, you can do it. Take an hour off. You made it to church. What a miracle. You did it. You're only 20 minutes late. What a gift. You did it. I think what I also know is that in this room, there are marriages right now that are hanging by a thread. There are marriages where you are one step away from saying, it's over. We can't do it anymore. And I think that what God is wanting to look down the mountain and say to you is, Hazak! You can do it, and, but you can't do it alone. Maybe it means connecting with one of the lay counselors here. Maybe it means going to the refuge. Maybe it means seeking out help. But I think that this means us as a community coming around to support those whose marriages are struggling and saying, this is important. This is critical, but it requires some hazak. And I also know that there are some in this room who struggle with some pretty significant temptations and sins And maybe they were ones that um, last night you gave into again. 
And the word that God wants to tell you right now is that he's never going to leave you or forsake you. He is for you. He's always for you because it has nothing to do with you earning it. You can't figure it out. And he wants to look down at you and say, Hazak, you can do it. You're going to be okay. He wants you to know that you're going to have to seek out some help. Maybe it means the refuge. Maybe it means counseling. Maybe it means some other thing. But you've got to know that his word to you is, I will never leave you or forsake you. I am with you. I am for you. I am for you. Because I am convinced that Jesus is for families. But I also know that our devotion and our hazak for following and imitating the way of Jesus should make that devotion for our families look minuscule in comparison because that is what truly empowers us to live out the kingdom of God is when he has all of our heart and all of our devotion and everything in us. So, I don't think Jesus is assaulting family values. (laughs) But I think he is trying to assert the incredible. He's trying to assert something incredible over us in hopes that it might show up in something credible in our lives. That he might actually bring something that didn't exist before. That his hazak would empower you with the power that can only come from God. So, as we close, I am, I'm going to ask that you stand. Um, I'm going to invite our, our prayer teams to come forward. If there are any places where you desperately need some hazak, I'm going to invite you to come and talk to these folks to pray with them. They would love to pray with you. If you've never been introduced to this Jesus who loves you more than anything and wants to remind you that he's with you, that he's for you, that he's never going to forsake you, these folks would love to pray with you and begin that journey. So as we close, I'm going to ask that you would just put your hands out and receive this benediction. May you, Woodland Hills, may you walk in Hazak. May you have courage. May you know that you don't need to be afraid, that you don't need to tremble at anything in front of you because the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. And he will never leave you. He will never forsake you. He's with you. Amen. Amen. Have a good one. Walk in Hazak. <laughs>